when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, President Donald Trump issued another one of his patented executive orders, this time endeavoring to bring jobs back to America through a buy American, hire American policy. Trump immediately went back out on the campaign trail to signal that great changes were now afoot in the land. But are they really? We've dug down into the details and discovered that it's actually a blend of activity masquerading as achievement. And guess what? That's a trend. Meanwhile, the conservative media universe played a big role in boosting Trump to the White House in 2016. But in 2017, there's a growing sense that the favor will not be returned in kind. This week, Fox News' top talent, Bill O'Reilly, was pushed out of a perch that was once pretty secure, owing to a litany of past sexual harassment transgressions that finally came home to roost. Meanwhile, in Texas, Trump enthusiast Alex Jones of InfoWars fame is in the middle of a custody battle with his ex-wife, and Jones's legal counsel has asserted an interesting defense, that the conspiracy mongering and hot rhetoric that shot Jones to acclaim is all just an act. Finally, we look once again to Turkey, where Turkish leader Recep Tayyip Erdogan has prevailed in a referendum vote that will give his office sweeping new powers. It looks for all the world that the vote was rigged, that authoritarianism is gaining a deeper foothold in the nation, and that these changes will bring grave complications to U.S. foreign policy. So why is President Trump celebrating this? I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Jessica Schulberg, and Amanda Turkle. And here's what happened first. Welcome to another edition of So That Happened. It's a podcast. You know that. You listen to it every week, and every week we get hopefully closer to the end of this tawdry existence. My name is Jason Liggins. I'm the editor of Eat the Press at the Huffington Post. I'm joined today by people who I'm regularly joined by. They can introduce themselves. I'm Zach Carter, and I am not hoping to get toward the end of this tawdry existence. I'm Arthur Delaney. I don't understand how anything else would. I mean, of course, we're getting closer. Right. What yeah. else would happen? You know, time's yeah, passing. Yeah, just accept it. Deal. It's fun. I'm it's living okay. forever. Screw you guys. All right. Yeah. You're, really, you're going to drink the blood of young men. Yeah. And, Peter Thiel and I. It's going to be <laughs> and, awesome. And live forever. God, he's going to be the worst friend at the end of the world. <laughs> <laughs> I think he'll still pick you up from the airport. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> we have a really great show. Today, it's going to be fun. We're going to talk about some disruptions in the conservative media sphere. We're going to talk about Turkey, the uh, country, not the food stuff. 
Uh, but we want to get started today talking about this dude who is our president. Uh, president Donald Trump, he has been in power for 90, 89, some 90 some odd days. Uh, during that time, day, yeah, in the 90s. And during that time, he's done not a whole lot. He's gotten a Supreme Court justice on the bench, which is good. But he or usually, bad. He usually, or bad, depending on your uh, point of view. Uh, but he usually spends his days uh, doing a lot of uh, signing of executive orders. And this week, he actually signed an executive order that really puts most of Trump's business holdings in jeopardy uh, because it would uh, it would mandate that uh, Americans be hired at companies in favor of immigrants. I think that's it. No, you make a good point, though. He part of part of his order dealt with the, the, our guest worker visa program, right. but yes. pointedly not the part. That he uses oh, to, to, to oh. underpay foreign workers at his resort. Oh well, then uh, I take that back. He left that alone. That was left his, out. His business will be fine, right? Uh, yes, hire American, buy American. That is the watchword of this new executive order coming from a man who has made in China and virtually every product he makes that is not a wine in Virginia. Um, but these executive orders, they're just—it's eh, kind of activity, not achievement. Like most things in government. You know, what's odd about this particular executive order is that I find the spirit. It was signed by a reality show television host who somehow became president. There's that. There's that. Uh, but of all the Trump policies, I think the idea behind this set of of policies is um, the least objectionable of pretty much anything that he has put his signature on since entering the White House. And in some extents, I think is is actually pretty decent policy if uh, if it could actually be implemented the thing is it will not be and uh and it's not at all clear that it actually comes from a you know <laughs> a really loving and uh and harmonious place great point that cuz the spirit of the executive order is actually simply for the US government to execute what it already is theoretically supposed to be doing we already have preferences in government procurement for companies that are american and there's all these waivers, which Trump talked about in his order. And what's weird about the order is that it doesn't actually do anything. About the waivers itself. It doesn't do themselves. anything to policy. It What it does is it tells uh, multiple government agencies that are involved in procurement to review their practices, get back to me in like 220 days. And procurement here means government contracting. When the government needs to buy stuff or do things and contracts with the private sector to get those things done, it's it, it. there are preferences for American companies. If you're an American company that wants to do something, you have higher status than a foreign bidder. Uh, and you know, there, there are economists who debate whether this is a good idea or a bad idea. I think on net, you know, there are reasons to think that the U.S. trade deficit is a problem. And this is one way to sort of to go at a slice of it. Um, if you do it in a rational way, it's not a bad, necessarily a bad plan. But this won't actually do anything, right? It, which is uh, fine. You know, that's normal for the government to to be deliberative and make sure it doesn't make a huge mistake by lurching in some uh, policy direction of the moment. But Donald Trump campaigned as Mister. I have the answers, and I'm going to fix everything the second I get there. So it's it's contrary to the spirit of Trump that we'd come to know during the campaign. 
Though we're now more familiar with how phony that was. Well, you know, there's something phony about executive orders. I know that executive orders uh, frequently get demonized because they they appear to be sort of legislative fiats from the executive branch. And some of them do make sweeping changes to policy and the economy. Uh, The Muslim ban would have done stuff. Yes, exactly. it would have been bad stuff. Exactly. But a lot of things that are called executive orders are simply – more like thesis statements or statements of intent, uh, a, a goal to shoot for. I mean, one of one of the uh, one of the executive orders that Barack Obama signed when he was president uh, that he got demonized for because it was part of the slate of executive orders he released was an executive order that would like ask people to have a meeting. <laughs> that's what the, that's what yeah. the Trump order this week was like. Why did why is this an order instead of why didn't you just email? Your commerce secretary and say, "Hey, I need a memo." <laughs> yeah, no, they're they're PR events, they're PR stunts, essentially. And if if you're familiar with the Twitter feed, Trump draws. They do a great send up of this. Uh, just take a look at it. You'll you'll get the idea. Uh, but you know, look, he signed an executive order early in his administration uh, that was supposed to like repeal Dodd Frank. Well, all it did was tell every single federal agency that's got anything to do with with Dodd Frank, which is like seven, uh, please review your regulations to see if they're good. Okay, that, like that—that's what they're supposed to do anyway. It's just—it's just a photo op and sort and sort of a sig- a way of signaling to both the market and to the public that this is sort of what Trump's priorities are. But does Trump know this? Because uh, Trump basically will sign an executive order, then go on the road or go in front of cameras and tout the fact that a goal has been achieved. Oh yeah, he was he was campaigning and campaigning. I mean, literally, he he went on a campaign style stop in Wisconsin to to brag about this, uh, and and nothing was actually achieved. I do want to talk a little bit about the H one B visa side of this thing because this is the immigration side, yeah. and and I think there's um you know there's the buy American side, which is the the stuff on procurement. The higher American is is the H one B visa side. Um, this is part of Trump's much broader anti immigrant sort of, you know, not sort of, anti-immigrant approach to, to governing. Uh, but there are real problems with the H-1B visa program, not because they let in too many immigrants, but because the immigrants who get to come in, these are high-skilled high workers working in tech, finance, professional who, who jobs. Who are, are technically not immigrants uh, as when they're on these visas. These are non-immigrant visas, but in reality, a lot of them do eventually immigrate. But, but that's one of the problems is that they're not technically Im- immigrants, so they are beholden to their employers to in order to stay here and they are paid less than american workers so it does drive down drive down wages yeah. but they they end up oftentimes stuck in a sort of quasi indentured servitude position where their employer has the power to determine essentially whether or not they get to stay in the country uh, that's that's like cutter but not as brutal yeah, and and look, and they're not they're not paid a market wage. They're they're paid sub market wages because of this this status. Um, and they're so, supposed to be paid a market. The law already says these people should be paid a market wage, and any company that wants these visas should already have certified that it couldn't find American workers. Right, and, and that process is a sham. Right, it's obviously crap. And the reason the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the largest lobbying front group. Or the biggest corporations in America supports expanding the H-1B visa program is because it's just a way to lower labor costs for them for you know high-skilled, expensive professional class workers. And so it's worth taking a look at this program and figuring out what to do about it. However, the executive order that Trump signed this week will not do that. And this is also a measure of goodwill he squandered where he had common ground on issues of trade and uh, yeah, protecting right. American workers with Democrats, for instance – 
uh, uh, senators, a lot of senators like Dick Durbin, uh, Joe Donnelly saying, yeah, we we want to look at these programs. We'd be perfectly willing to work with the president. And then after this order comes out, the H-1B component, Dick Durbin says, this is too little, too late. We all hate you now. It's not going to work. So it's it's uh, uh, it reflects a, a missed opportunity that Trump had to get along with people on the Hill. I think that I, I think I think that Trump goes back to this executive order well time and again just because things aren't going well for him in most other aspects of his presidentialing. You know, he's not he's not succeeding in getting legislative legislation passed through Congress, despite the fact his party holds control of both houses. And it, it's a complete logjam there. I think this is do you think that this is just like the only way he can do something besides dropping bombs? I mean, you said it at the top of the at the top of the show. I mean, his only achievement so far is getting Neil Gorsuch confirmed to the Supreme Court. And in order to do that, the Senate had to change the rules for how Supreme Court justices get confirmed. So, yeah, he's he's basically screwed up everything so far except for bombing places where every time he puts a bomb on something every single cable news channel cnn msnbc fox yeah it's gross bends over backwards to say how awesome and beautiful it is that he's bombed something other than bombing stuff he's not getting any praise so if he puts his name on a piece of paper and has a photo op he looks like a big boy president and has you know a nice couple hours i okay I, i have to change topics just ever so briefly but i don't think i can let this go this week uh uh, Jonathan Martin and Amy Parnes book on the Clinton campaign came out uh, shattered and uh, it describes well I mean it describes sort of the same campaign she ran in 2008 uh, but the Clinton team has really reacted badly to this book I guess you can understand this but last night Nick Merrill who was who's working on the Clinton campaign was was posting like photographs of like happy times on the Clinton campaign. Woof. What was my man doing? What was my man Nick Merrill up to? It was amazing. They they sort of swapped one Clinton stereotype for like another. So so the, the book presents a lot of infighting, backstabbing and dysfunction inside the Clinton the, the Clinton campaign, which in 2008 everybody knew about it because it was leaking everywhere. And this book basically says 2016 was no different except they didn't leak. And the reason you didn't hear much about this at all. Yeah. And it it seemed like it was a much more polished operation. But the problem with the backstabbing is not just that people's feelings get hurt and, you know, people get demoted for the wrong reasons, is that people inside the campaign care more about where they are in the internal hierarchy with relation to the candidate than they do about actually doing stuff to win the campaign. And of course, they lost. And so now you see Clinton staffers tweeting out, actually, things were really great. And you've got photos of these Clinton people like toasting each other with champagne glasses on a private jet looking like the most out of touch elite liberals ever. Also, why? Why are you posting these photos? You lost that. Hooray. More champagne. We lost and Trump is president. Yeah. I mean, it just seems the inalterable fact is that they did not win the election. And so something went wrong and someone is to blame. And I'm not I'm not one of those people that that believes everyone involved in this campaign should be immediately pushed out to sea on an ice flow. Mm. But do the, there's a pretty harsh p- penalty. <laughs> it is a pretty harsh penalty. Jail I would, would be reco- I would recommend it for other instances, uh, but not in this one. But the lack of circumspection is kind of galling to me. That, it's wait, Hillary Clinton's supposed to be in prison. <laughs> 
There's another uh, campaign pledge that Donald Trump didn't follow through on. He needs to sign an executive order asking the Justice Department well, to explore. Look, I mean, here's, here's the thing. <laughs> we've, we've talked about this before. But yeah. in a close election decided by, I think it was ultimately a combined like 88,000 votes in three swing yeah, states. Sure. You can blame any single thing, right? Failure has a lot of absent fathers. Yeah. You, you yeah. want to blame James Comey? Do it. You want to blame Vladimir Putin? Do it. Okay, fine. But this was close. It didn't have to be close. It was a clearly winnable election. And the campaign blew it by allowing it to become close, whether it's, you know, Robbie Mook's fault or whether it's Hillary Clinton's fault for giving stupid speeches to Goldman Sachs, you know, when she, in the middle of this populist election. Mm. I don't know. But clearly the campaign did not win and their job was to win. I don't see what the point is of sending out all these photos saying, actually, we're really good afterwards. <laughs> Trump is still president. Right. We had a good time along the way to losing. It's just I don't know. Keep your head down and like. Ponder your existence, friends. That's my advice. All right. Uh, we have a really great show. I want to get to it. So uh, without further ado, we'll be right back. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. And we're back. Uh, so I don't know if you've noticed, but there's been a couple disruptions in the conservative media celebrity universe this week. Uh, down in Texas, Alex Jones, the conspiracy-minded ranter at InfoWars, has been uh, in a custody battle with his ex-wife. And it has impacted his ability to continue to present himself as an authentic voice of some kind of journalism. Meanwhile, in more mainstream circles, Bill O'Reilly, he went on vacation about a week ago, but he will not be coming back, uh, mainly because of the scandal that's emerged over the massive amounts of money that Fox News has had to spend to settle numerous sexual harassment claims against O'Reilly. It's been kind of weird. This is supposed to be the age of Trump. This media is the media that put him in the office. They're supposed to be a Senate. They seem to be falling apart joining us to talk about that we have arthur delaney hello and we have amanda turkle hi famous famous nemesis of bill o'reilly <laughs> well known uh, uh, this um one of the things you have to say about bill o'reilly in this instance is uh he skated for a long time as a real toxic guy 
at Fox News. And I don't mean toxic in the terms of the content he put on the air. People can argue about that. But $13 million, was it, in settlements? Mm-hmm. Because, because he wouldn't stop sexually harassing people. I, I, I find it hard to believe that – I find it crazy that a, 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 an organization like Fox News would, would willingly just like make that the cost of doing business. Yes. I mean, he, but, you know, he also brought in, and some of that was O'Reilly's own money. Uh, but, you know, he brought in big ratings for the network. He was the top man on basic cable for many years. He was sort of the face of Fox News in many ways. And so they felt like it was worth it to keep him around. But, you know, things have changed. And in many ways, I think it changed because of Trump. You know, yes, Trump was elected, but people have also, started to become more aware of, you know, we need to do something, the Women's March, for example. We need to fight back and speak out. And it's just not as okay as it used to be maybe a couple years ago. Well, p- people are angry that Trump, an admitted sexual assaulter, became president anyway. Right, yeah. And so this is part of a, I, I think Amanda's right, total direct backlash against Trump. Yeah, I could totally see that. The the I mean, the thing that sticks with me about this case is just is is that this was tolerated for such a long time. Right, he um, should have been out long ago. I mean, we knew many years ago about Andrea Macris and in his famous you know unwanted phone sex while he was supposedly using a vibrator and confusing a loofah with a falafel. And that's been known for a long time, and that he settled with her. So it's not like this guy has had this great reputation with women. And part of uh, the O'Reilly persona as a, a news commentator is that he is like this family man upstanding american citizen right or that's what he likes to portray he portrays himself as that and so so the scandal undercuts that but his viewership had continued to increase his family's been falling apart all this entire time as well not just not he's not right his kids don't want to live with him not to like get very personal but right he's not the image he portrays well i mean i mean it's personal because does or am i mistaken that he uh his brand is partly who he is as a person Yes. And that this has uh, really damaged that. Right. He wrote, a, what was it, a children's book about manners, for right? example. Right? It's crazy <laughs> to think about now. Just, uh, just nuts to think about now. The, 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 another thing that sticks with me is, of course, one of the big reasons that O'Reilly is out is because there was a massive push to deny him sponsors. And that appears to have like really, really, really got him sorted at Fox very quickly. Uh, but Dylan Byers at CNN reported uh, yesterday that – Bill O'Reilly just isn't that well liked at Fox News. Outside of perhaps the executives who see the bottom line of the ratings he's bringing in, he's not particularly uh, beloved there. Uh, six sources say that uh, people prefer to work with Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity. That while they're, I think, I think the phrase that that Byers uses while they're polarizing on the air, he's, he's a, 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 they're both you know warm and and nice to work with. I can tell you when I was down in Farmville covering the vice presidential debate, you know, a lot of us were there, and Sean Hannity was there, and I I got to observe Sean Hannity working with you know his staff and support crew uh, in that venue, and uh, whatever you think about Sean Hannity's content on the air. What I witnessed, he treats his people like gold. Yeah. They all like working for this him. This has been sort of a poorly kept secret for many years is that Bill O'Reilly is a jerk. He's not just a jerk on air. He's a jerk in person and people don't like working with him. And that was part of – you know, a big reason was not just the public push. It was an internal push. A lot of women – who didn't like working with Bill O'Reilly anyway were saying, look, after Roger Ailes, you guys promised to change the 
culture here, but yet you're keeping Bill O'Reilly. And people always, I think, were okay keeping him because he did so well, but it's just, it's not okay anymore. And you know, Bill O'Reilly's excuse that, like, if you're a man in the arena, you're going to be accused of this stuff. Like you said, Sean Hannity hasn't been accused of this right, stuff. No. You know, Jake Tapper hasn't been, you know, there are other men who are high profile hosts who haven't been accused of this stuff. That is his last word. He's like, just because I'm a famous man, yeah. people are going to accuse me of sexual right. harassment. It's not just because you're conservative. It's Sean Hannity, you know, generally, you, you, I mean, you don't hear that about him. You know, at the same time, a lot of people, including a lot of liberals, have laundered uh, Bill O'Reilly's karma for a long time. I mean, he's been kind of touchy-feely with Stephen Colbert, uh, Barack Obama granted mm-hmm. an interview every year. I mean, kind of egg on their faces too because they had to have known these kind of things were going on at Fox. Yeah, and you know, it just and it's not just women. Like stuff he said about minorities over the years, it's it's pretty bad stuff. And he's and he sicked his goon on you. Right. <laughs> yes, he also ambushed me in 2009 to show that he you know, was a friend to women who have been victims of crime. And so he sent his male producer to ambush me and follow me while I was on vacation. And they did multiple segments about saying weird stuff about you. Yeah, saying I was a villain. And, you know, my employer at the time, I wasn't at Huffington Post, they were nervous because, you know, Bill O'Reilly does a segment on you saying you're a villain and claiming that I was hurting rape survivors. Uh, they got nervous and they they took extra security measures in the building. They encouraged me to get pepper spray. They wanted me to take cabs for a little while just because you don't know who who's watching his show and what's going to happen and everything I have to say was fine uh but yeah it was it was it was weird it's like if it was this easy for them to find my home address I think how easy is it for some crazy person you to know, you're bearing the lead here a little bit Amanda like this story I covered it for the Huffington Post and it was crazy because <laughs> the basic backstory on this is that is Bill O'Reilly made a donation to a sort of rape survivors group he was going to be the keynote speaker he's, yeah, he's going to be the keynote speaker benefit. to a rape survivors group and Keith Olbermann at the time pointed out this hypocrisy and you when you're at Think Progress reported on what Keith Olbermann no, no, said no 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 Keith Olbermann didn't do it before uh, it was actually a liberal blog called uh uh, Newshounds. That's right. It was Newshounds. Yes. But the point is, you didn't break this story. Right. It was just an aggregation. It was it, my blog post was maybe a paragraph or two. It was right. very, very short. Uh, and of all the people he could have stalked, he right. chose the woman who yes. was five foot two. I'm not that even that tall. <laughs> <laughs> I give you a lot of credit. You seem five foot two to me. <laughs> maybe in heels. <laughs> but you made a good point about you know the, the increased security. You don't know who's out there watching. He did not have as dangerous an audience as Alex Jones has. Right. Yes. Al- Alex Jones Much contributed to this lunatic going to Comet Ping Pong and shooting a, a gun. gun into the floor of Comet Ping Pong. And Alex Jones uh, – now he's in a custody battle uh, for custody of his children. Yes. It's not like he's going away as a result of this. But no, both, because he's his own boss. Right, but it, but in, in both cases, does it seem like a mask is being removed? Alex Jones took his own off mask off in court. I mean, he, he takes his shirt off a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you had to go there. Um, uh, yes, he does take a shirt off. But in court, when he was, you know, he's in a custody battle. One of the points he's making, one of the points his ex-wife is making is that he routinely goes on the air. I mean, he goes on his show. In the house. And, 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 and yeah, in the house, uh, foments these kind of weird conspiracies, foments these kind of violent reactions. His kids are there watching all the time. And his lawyers in court asserted that Alex Jones is doing nothing but playing a character, that nothing you see in InfoWars from Alex Jones is authentic. He's just 
pretending. And this is something that I feel we've seen in a lot of cases with sort of like uh, toxic men who get in trouble like this. They say, oh, just playing a character. But uh, just in other words, nothing he's saying, he, he doesn't mean it. Although that's what his lawyer's saying. Alex Jones went on the air the other day and he might I don't think he was supposed to talk about this, but he went on the air and said, like, that's rubbish. The media is saying that I'm playing a character. Uh, but I'm not. This is the real me. I mean, so he's like lawyers. undermining his own lawyer. So that will be it'll be interesting. That has not that video has not been I don't I don't think I could be wrong. I don't think it's been introduced in court yet. Uh, so it will be interesting to see. Alex Jones is being cross-examined today, and I'm sure that th- something like that will come up. You know, one of the things uh, that uh, Ken Lyon, former editor-in-chief of Wonkat, now he works for – he runs his own newspaper out in the California desert. Um, he pointed out that for a long time, Alex Jones was nevertheless kind of a – benign figure. He ranted and people kind of laughed at his ranting. And again, a lot of mainstream journalists uh, kind of laundered Alex Jones' karma, treated him like a serious guy. Uh, but when America's politics started getting crazier, that's when Alex Jones sort of became this object of of this sort of like fierce and weird object. But for a long time, people were just like, ah, you know, he's a ranter. He, he thinks he thinks 9-11 was an inside job. We treated these guys like they were kind of like just like benign weirdos. Yeah, it was it was always like Oklahoma City, all that. that those were inside jobs. But right, when you have the, the future president, Donald Trump, saying that everyone really respects you, you do a great job. Yes, you get <laughs> you get a much bigger platform. That plus the Bill O'Reilly uh, story happening at the same time are, are the reasons why I think the Alex Jones story is hugely resonant. That this is a guy who helped catapult Donald Trump into politics and into the White House because Donald Trump started out with this whole birther conspiracy theory that is basically Alex Jones material. Yeah. And so it's a huge moment, uh, a huge reckoning with this bullshit that helped propel Donald Trump and unfortunately will still be stuck with Donald Trump even as these other two figures are are sort of uh, taking massive hits. You know, we've seen since Trump came into office at Breitbart News, internal warring again between Steve Bannon and the people he left behind. Um, it's it's awfully strange that uh, one of the first immediate impacts of Trump's ascendancy was sort of these kind of like wrecking balls taken to the media outfits that that put him there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and these are these are people Donald Trump likes. These are he has vouched for them. Bill O'Reilly has long been his friend, uh, and so it will. You know, we'll see if how much of this carries through over to Donald Trump, or if he has enough of a base that he's still he's still a birther who says vaccines cause autism. Right. So yeah. I predict that it won't it won't right. matter to him. But if if his uh, base sort of erodes around yeah. him. That can't be a bad thing. Alex Printerfuge made the same point you did, that this is like part of this sort of like conservative hucksterism that's been part of their media ecosystem at all for a long time. It's manifested itself in, in like penny stock scams and get-rich-quick schemes and cancer cures. They've been like feeding their voters bullshit for a long time. And finally, at the moment where this this sort of like sub-rosa scam stuff reaches its apotheosis, it all explodes in everyone's face. Uh, Arthur, thanks for being here. Amanda, two weeks in a row, man. We're excited to have you. Yeah, thanks back. for having me. Uh, we will be right back.
And we're back. So over the weekend in Turkey, uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the leader of Turkey, won a referendum granting him the power to amend the constitution and specifically to amend the constitution in a way that would allow him to consolidate massive power over the state. Uh, it is. It has been greeted in Turkey with some alarm and trepidation. It's been greeted in America with some alarm and trepidation outside of the White House, that is, where it's been somehow greeted warmly. Here to talk about that, we have Zach Carter. Hi, everyone. And our foreign policy doomsayer goddess, Jessica Schulberg. Hi, everyone. Jessica, so let's talk about the referendum itself before we get into the the sketchiness of the referendum. What were the what, the point of the referendum seems to have been to to grant uh, Erdogan the power to both lead uh, his party and lead sorry be president of the country and lead his party in parliament, which at first blush doesn't seem like that is so much of a big deal, but it's been compared to a big authoritarian move. Can you explain why this is something that people should worry about? I think part of the reason people see it as an authoritarian move is because of Erdogan's own history of sort of consolidating power for himself over the past several decades, um, going from prime minister uh, to becoming the president. Uh, last year, he pushed out a prime minister who was seen as sort of a challenge to his authority and stated more of a yes man. Uh, the current prime minister was enthusiastically in favor of this referendum, which basically abolishes his job. There, There is no more prime ministership anymore. Um, so the way that Erdogan and his party, the AKP, would try to spin it in Turkey um, was saying, you know, we're, we're, we're actually becoming more like you, America. We just want a presidential system. This parliamentary system is a mess. This isn't anything threatening. This is just us being more like America. Um, but kind of in the fine print of this referendum is a lot of things uh, that Erdogan would be empowered to do that you wouldn't normally see an American president doing in a functioning democracy. Uh, that said, Turkey is not a functioning democracy. Um, ever since the attempted coup last year, there's been, you know, mass roundups of anyone who criticizes the government or speaks out. That's political opponents, journalists, professors, etc. Yeah, public service as well. Uh, he's basically two two things right off the bat. I I think he accomplished here is he's well he's eliminated the possibility that Parliament will. will provide any oversight over his right. office or his appointments. And from my understanding, he's going to have a real super seamless, frictionless glide path to essentially taking over the judiciary as well. Right, which is something that there's already – the way he put it when he was sort of campaigning for this referendum is saying, this is the system of government that we've basically already adopted. It's up to you, the voters, to make it the law. And the voters made it the law, right, Zach? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I mean, to, to some extent, I, I, I feel like this is just sort of formalizing something that's already happened. He had already I mean, done. He's, he's, he's arresting dissidents. I mean, right. pe people who speak out against him, whether they are journalists, whether they're academics, whether they're politicians from opposing parties, uh, he just arrests them and puts them in jail. That is what authoritarian strongmen do. And uh, if you want to put a law on it to say that this is OK now, um, you know, I don't think it really changes the underlying substance of the regime, which has been not just tilting towards authoritarianism, but but a functional authoritarian government for several years now. Well, okay. So I was joking a little bit. The the, the referendum passed very narrowly, and there's been some evidence of uh, obvious voter tampering. Uh, there were uh, rural districts where you have people working way outside the district in uh, agricultural communities uh, who reported 100 uh, percent voting 
uh, the records were like everyone voted and everyone voted for the referendum. Clearly, Just as popular as Napoleon, man. <laughs> yeah, clearly, clearly that didn't happen. Um, is there anything to be done about the obvious voter fraud? Not really. I mean, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which is affiliated with the Council of Europe, which with uh, which Turkey is a member of, um, put out this pretty scathing report after the referendum saying that this was not a free and fair election. Uh, they went into even kind of more subtle details uh, like how the media really couldn't campaign or put on any opposition to this referendum. It was by the time the campaign was in full force, it was pretty much only state-run friendly media who were even on air. And that meant that voters didn't really have the full story. They didn't have a lot of information about the downsides to the referendum. Um, when I was in Istanbul last month, I guess, yeah, last month, I met with some kind of opposition activists who were really involved in the Gezi Park protests. Um, they were out there, you know, making a big scene. And they said, you know, we wouldn't dare do that now. Like, we wouldn't dare go out there and campaign openly against the referendum. We might try to distribute pamphlets saying this is what the referendum does, but they wouldn't actually get out there and oppose it because they were so afraid of getting arrested. And then, like you said, there was actual indications that there was tampering with the votes. They were starting to accept ballots that didn't have this official stamp on it, um, which was sort of seen as a way to just throw in some bullshit votes um, for the yes camp. So why does the Trump administration like this? I mean, to, to I mean – you know, when Trump was campaigning, he would say all these disparaging things about NATO. It seems like Turkey has not. You know, if if you're upset with the way NATO functions, Turkey has not been the most effective NATO ally in other U.S. foreign policy objectives. Uh, if you don't like Muslims, right, right. you probably don't like this Islamist politician who's yeah. driving out all the Kamalas. Exactly. Why does the? I mean, I don't. I don't understand the logic behind the, the Trump administration's enthusiasm. Yeah, that for was this. weird. <laughs> Trump. Trump. There was there's a period of time where no one gave a, no one in the government gave a statement about this referendum. And then Trump right. congratulated Erdogan mm-hmm. on his fraudulent power grab, which right? Is, which is very which is like a, a unique thing. Presidents don't typically do that. I, no. I, don't, I don't recall I don't recall Obama uh, calling up Ahmadinejad and saying, "Well, you got me. <laughs> you did it." What was really kind of alarming about Trump's readout of the call with Erdogan was this last line. I have it open in front of me and it says that that they they discussed the counter ISIS campaign and the need to cooperate against all groups that use terrorism to achieve their ends, which is basically like a Turkish party line for how they describe the Kurds. And it kind of, for people who are familiar with the region and were reading between the lines, it really did read as kind of uh, a blank check for Erdogan to go and purge the Kurds out of, you know, politics and society. Something he's shown a penchant for doing already. I mean, right now the West does have a preference for Kurdish fighters in Syria. Um, But Turkey doesn't make any distinction – well, the ruling party in Turkey doesn't make any distinction between Syrian Kurdish fighters and the uh, PKK who have been designated by their country a terrorist group. And of course they've long tried to limit the ambition of Iraqi Kurds. Uh, despite the fact that they are pretty reliable, oh well, up to a, up to a point, pretty reliable. I, I mean, territorial. They don't they don't drift beyond their territory to fight ISIS, but within their territory, they they are pretty effective fighters against ISIS. And well, so one it's thing caused that's... a huge 
I think it's added to the whole quagmirization of this region. What was interesting, too, about Trump's statement is uh, the military, our military, really, really wants to work with the YPG, the Syrian Kurds, to retake Raqqa, the kind of ISIS stronghold in Syria. Um, they have everyone trained. They're ready to go. Um, but they've sort of been waiting for the referendum to end because Turkey is so against this. And they didn't want to do anything that – could be used in Turkey to sort of score political points and say, oh, look, the U.S. is leaving us out to dry. They're giving weapons to these terrorists. Um, so in the military, there is definitely a lot of anticipation for, you know, are we going to get the green light to move forward after this referendum? So it was pretty weird when, you know, the military is probably hoping Trump is going to say, all right, referendum's over, go ahead. And then he's giving this wink nod to Erdogan to to kind of go against the Kurds on an even stronger level. Turkish nationalism is a really uh, peculiar Form of nationalism because there, are, you know, all nationalisms are weird. But the the thing that Turkish nationalists really worry about is is the Kurds. They're not worried about ISIS. They're not worried about uh, about other foreign invaders. There's this very sense in which Turkish identity is defined by not being Kurdish, and so the the Erdogan regime has just spent years and years fomenting that, yeah, doing things to to just try and and sort of organize his political party with the Kurds as the big bad boogeyman, and that has routinely interfered with U.S. other U.S. foreign policy goals in the region, particularly against ISIS. And I mean, we should also mention just for the sake of all sideisms that the Kurds have orchestrated some very deadly attacks inside of Istanbul. They've killed hundreds of civilians, Turkish police officers. I mean, there's there's a legitimate grievance there. Um, it's just a bit of a, a sweeping reaction that the ruling government has had against that. I mean, it was to the point where people speaking out in parliament in a peaceful way are going to jail for that. Um, you guys have both spent time in uh, places like Ankara and Istanbul, and uh, these are major commercial centers in Turkey. And in these places, the vote against a referendum, they voted against the referendum. Is there – despite what we've been talking about, this sort of like power grab, sort of increase in authoritarianism here, is there a legitimate resistance movement that could potentially defeat Erdogan in, in a parliamentary election? I would say no. Really? So that, that they, is, they arrest everybody who votes yeah, against I think, them. I, mean. <laughs> I think right now, I mean, even just the state of the opposition now versus a couple of years ago, I think it's been really decimated. And even if there are people in sort of more urban areas who don't like what Erdogan's doing and aren't comfortable with it, I don't think people feel all that um, secure to mobilize against him. I don't think they think they can win. And I think that they see that the cost of doing so is much too high. Yeah, I remember the last act of serious resistance against Erdogan was uh, an attempted military coup. It was it wasn't an electoral referendum or something. And yeah. that to me suggests that people on the ground don't believe that the sort of traditional democratic mm-hmm. means of uh, of opposition are going to be effective. But you do see uh, people in, on the ground also really have a very uh, a, a big aversion in Turkey to military coups as well, though. That's the thing is, I think after the coup, you saw for a very brief period of time, everybody sort of rallying around Erdogan, even his opponents, even the CHP, the the biggest opposition party in Turkey, was saying, oh, we we don't like Erdogan, but we really don't like military takeover. So he sort of had the chance to kind of ride this wave of popular support. And then he went and arrested everybody that he accused of being friends with this cleric who lives in Pennsylvania who allegedly plotted the coup. Uh, Gula. Gulen. It's really sad, though, because, I mean, particularly Istanbul. I mean, Istanbul is like the greatest city in the history of the world. And and Turkey is a lot like the United States in certain ways where it, it 
it has these these urban centers which are sort of much more pluralist and cosmopolitan and it's got uh, you know rural areas which are much more careful uh, how you wear this you coastal elite exactly and 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 it's you know but but for a long time turkish politics was sort of dominated by these these essentially Istanbul elites, you know, to some extent in Ankara as well. But And we should also mention that during that point, during that time, people who were religious like Erdogan and like the Islamists who rallied uh, behind him, they were treated pretty terribly. They weren't yeah. allowed to wear their headscarves. If you were female, you weren't allowed to openly be religious. Um, and that's a lot of how Erdogan kind of rose to power is that in a real democracy, you should be able to practice your religion. And everybody, including top American politicians, were really excited by Erdogan when he first came to power. Um, decades ago, they thought that, you know, okay, he's he's religious, but he really wants to have this peaceful coexistence. What is the last question? How, how does this uh, impact American policy right now? Do we have that? We have, we have policy in America? Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's, okay, let's assume we're still living We haven't said any <laughs> armadas to Istanbul. I think the, the two big things, um, one is what you got at earlier, which is the, the fight against ISIS. Are we going to are we going to now feel comfortable just saying, screw you guys, sorry, we're, we're taking back Raqqa with the YPG? Uh, this isn't really U.S.-focused, but Turkey's been trying to join the European Union for a while. Um, the referendum brought tensions between Europe and Turkey to all-time high. Erdogan was running around calling European politicians Nazis for sort of limiting the amount of campaigning that could be done in Europe in right. favor of the referendum. Um, and from what I understand, though, European diaspora of Turks voted for the referendum. I think that's true. Um, so and I, under, I also understand he may bring back the death penalty, which would make joining the EU a dead letter right off the bat, right? That's been dead for a while though. And then I don't think that the referendum necessarily directly affects on this. But ever since the attempted coup last July, uh, Erdogan and his government have been leaning really, really hard on the U.S. to extradite Fethullah Gulen, the, the cleric we mentioned earlier. Um, the Justice Department seems to pretty consistently, even through the administration changing, be saying, you know, we we just don't have evidence to extradite this guy. And part of the problem, too, is, you know, we, we, we as America can't extradite somebody to a country where we have reason to believe they won't be subject to a fair trial right. or the presumption of innocence. And I'd say that the more that Erdogan moves to consolidate his power and move in this authoritarian way, the less justifiable it would be for the U.S. to turn this guy over. Right. Well, okay. There you go. We talked turkey. We uh, talked turkey. Things are pretty, well, tarfu, as they say. We should all still go to Turkey. It's beautiful. But now we're going to stop talking about it. We're going to quit cold oh, don't turkey. Do don't do it. You I hope you edit that out, Zach. Yeah, I hope we don't. <laughs> all right. Jessica Schulberg, thank you for being here with us. Thank you. Zach, it was great until that last part. That was pretty bad. I win. <laughs> we'll be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Jessica Schulberg, and Amanda Turkle. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to So That Happened at HuffingtonPost.com. And thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.